So the reading is from Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the, the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we went by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he may show his incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and it's not from yourself, it is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of his promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to, those, to you who were far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Well, good morning, everyone. Lovely to see you. Lovely to see the sun's out after yesterday's rain. But um, that's not what we're here to talk about. This is not a weather forecast. We are here to recognize the difference and the struggle there is in our world and the gospel and the difference it makes. In the world in which we live, forgiveness is in very, very short supply. It's hard to come by, which is why the, uh, the case of two years ago was so moving. Let me show you a picture of uh, Amber Geyer. She was a police officer, a hardworking police officer in America. And after a long, arduous 14-hour shift, she was making her way wearily home. She lived in an apartment block and she was trying to find her way to her flat. Then tragedy struck because of her weariness and the fact that she had lost her bearings, she made the way to the wrong apartment on the wrong floor in her complex. The uh, door was ajar and she entered into what she thought was her apartment and there on what she thought was her sofa was a stranger. And so she shot him twice. Botham Jean had his life taken away from him. She went to trial. And uh, on the inside of the courtroom, she received 10 years, a verdict of 10 years for a manslaughter for taking this man's life. The uh, prosecutors outside the courtroom were absolutely incandescent. They were angry at such a short sentence being given out for 
of taking a life. But her brother, or rather his brother, who was inside the courtroom, took a very different tact. This is what happened next. Brant Jean, brother to both of them, who'd lost his life, asked the judge if he could do something extraordinary and move across the courtroom and to not just offer his condolences, but to hug and embrace Amber Gaia. He said, I want to, and I do in fact forgive her. I want to hug her. Can I do that? And so first Brant and then the judge herself came down and embraced Amber Gaia. This is what Brant said. He said, if you are truly sorry to Amber, if you are truly sorry, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. I'm speaking for myself, not for my family, but I love you just like anyone else. It's a remarkable turn of events that happened two years ago. And we live in a world where forgiveness and reconciliation are coming together of divided parties is in such short supply. We live in a world where it's about getting even. We live in a world where everybody has to say their opinion. We live in a world where rather than forgiveness, I'd rather just cancel you and never see you again. And I don't just want to seek your ill. I want to get even and I want justice. And justice is how I define it, not according to the common code. But where did Brandt get the ability to cross the courtroom? Where did he get the ability to forgive, to forgive the policewoman who made a terrible mistake? Well, in the book of Ephesians, we get the answer. Paul, the apostle who wrote the book of Ephesians, has been talking about the power of God. In Ephesians chapter 1, in the first chapter that we looked at a few weeks ago, he was praying that God would open the eyes of people's hearts so that they would see and understand the power of God. And that power is revealed in two ways. It's revealed in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, that Abigail read for us. This power is seen in God coming into a situation of death and bringing about life. It's seen in individuals going from death to life, from darkness to light. God bringing vitality where there is mortality. That's the gospel hope. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. But the second evidence for the power of God that we can see when the eyes of our hearts are opened up is in verses 11 through to verse 22. We look at 11 to 18 today. The second evidence is not in the life of the individual bring, being brought from death to life. The second evidence is seen in the church. The church, a community of warring fractions outside of, outside of God. But God, by his sufficient strength, brings about reconciliation. That's a big word that we'll look at today. I mean, look around you without encroaching anyone's personal space for two meters. What a rag bunch of people we are. Look at the Zoom screen and see in the little windows what a great mixture of people we are. We wouldn't be found together in any other context. And the church is a diverse community of people that is the second evidence of the power of God seen in the resurrection of Jesus, bringing diverse people into a common purpose. But our passage follows almost identically the shape of the passage, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, as we look at verses 11 to 18 that Dave looked at last week. And there are similar titles as well. There's a problem, there's a solution, and there's a method. Problem, solution, 
and method. Let's look at those together. A problem. What's the problem that Paul is describing beginning in verse 11? He, he gives us a worked example. A worked example of the power of God. Paul is giving us a case study, if you like, of, of the church. There is hostility between the whole of the world, between Jew and Gentile. This division is not just a historical one, but it's comprehensive understanding of the world. You've got the Jews, who are God's chosen, appointed people, recipient of God's uh, grace and a heritage of his workings with them. And then you've got the Gentiles, who's everybody else outside of Israel. And Paul is saying, I'll give you an example, a case study, a worked example of two groups of people that have got nothing in common, apart from they hate each other. That's the only thing they've got in common. And here are some words on the screen that sum up this word hate. Now, you may look at this passage and think that actually the word hate does not appear, but it does. If you look carefully, please, verse 14, there's a dividing wall of hostility. Verse 16, Jew and Gentile lived in a state of hostility towards one another. Hostility that we read twice in verse 14 and verse 16 is literally the word hate. And so Paul is saying, let me explain to you the power of God seen in the church. Imagine two groups of people who hate each other. Let's remind us of the Jews and let's remind us of the Gentiles. Two groups of people that have nothing in common. Their race divides them. Their age would divide them. Their language would divide them. Their history would divide them. Their practices would divide them. They're completely apart. And they hate each other. And yet, and yet God in Christ has done something to remove the hatred, to replace the hostility with reconciliation and with forgiveness. Did you notice the deep irony? Because if there are two warring parties, especially boys and girls, if you're in the playground, you want to say, who spilt the tea? What's the beef? In my time, what's the down low? Maybe it wasn't. But look at verse 15. Verse 15 explains why Jew and Gentile are so hating of one another. Where does the hostility come from? And it's a very ironic source. The Jews were God's people in the Old Testament. The Jews received God's mercy and grace and provision. They, they were rescued by him from under the boots of Pharaoh. And they received God's word through God's servant Moses on Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. They were God's people. They were supposed to be a blessing to the world. From the seed of Abraham, I will bless the world. All nations will be blessed through you. They were a light to the nations, or they were supposed to be. But their reality was that their status and their identity, the fact that they had God's word, that they were God's people, it wasn't a badge of honor, but it was a burden to them. And it became a stick, changing my metaphor, by which they could measure themselves against the standards of other people. It was a, it was a, a stand on which they could stand upon and look down upon other people. And so they used it rather than to bless the world, rather for them to be a blessing to the world. Instead, they looked down on other people and this hostility grew. Verse 11 and 12, there's a situation of name calling. We are the circumcision. You are the uncircumcision. This is back to the playground stuff, but this is far more serious. 
We are the circumcision. That means we are, that's an outward sign that every man would have that we are God's covenant people. And because of our status that God has given to us, we can look down on you because you are the uncircumcision. So the Jews looked down on the Gentiles, but that wasn't all. The Gentiles hated the Jews. They were hostile towards those who were hostile to them. Verse 11 and 12 says that actually Paul is saying, Gentiles, you're no better than the Jews. They look down on you because of the issue of circumcision. But actually, you point your finger at them and you need to remember what God has done to you by his and through his grace in Christ. You've forgotten that God has ended the separation, that God has included you as part of the covenant people, that God has made you part of his covenant community and he's given you hope. And so, Gentile, how dare you look down on Jew and Jew, how dare you despise Gentile? You're made one. But it's just a worked example of us. Larry Osborne is a leadership consultant. He's a Christian man. He's written a super book called Sticky Teams. And there's this quote from that book on the screen now. He says, uh, our spiritual comparisons are incredibly biased. We have an amazing ability to compare things in a way that causes us to come out on top. And when we come out on top, it's hard not to look down on people who don't measure up. So Larry Osborne is putting in modern language what the Apostle Paul is saying in the book of Ephesians. There is a universal problem. That is, we love to compare. We love to take a good gift from God that he's given to us whether it be where we live, whether it be some intellectual, some ability, whether it be family or our opportunities through singleness. And then we judge other people. And we do it in such a way that we always come out on top with our measuring stick. And so then we can use the same measuring stick to beat or judge or look down upon other people. It's very intentional game that we play. We play it individually. We play it as races and cultures and groups and classes of people. We love to separate. We love to contrast. We love to compare. And the question is, why? Because from that judgment, from that standard of us looking down on others, from us rolling our eyes at other people when they speak, from us living in a different postcode with a more respectable-looking house, it's an opportunity from which to gain our identity. We gain our identity by looking down on other people, by despising, by judging, by dividing. It's how we define ourselves. It's how we get ourselves a self, our sense of self-worth by taking a good thing and making it a ruling or an ultimate thing by which we can look down on other people. I'm not like you. I am better than you. And by making this division and this assessment, I get myself a higher sense of self-worth. It's throughout the Bible, perhaps uh, the most well-known one from the New Testament is in Luke chapter 18, verse 11, where two men, having gone to the temple to pray, to pray to God, one looks down upon the other and says, oh, Lord, I thank you that I am not like other people. That's uh, an individual looking down on someone else because he thinks he's better than his brother. Do you get the principle? It's the reason behind why so much blood has been spilt on every country throughout history. It's why we build walls, not of hostility in terms of the law, but hostility in terms of gender and race and color 
and creed and class and respectability, even an Epps manual, we still build boundaries. And so Paul twice, verse 11, do you see? Remember to the Jews. Verse 12, remember to the Gentiles. He's saying, remember what God has done because there is a universal problem that only he can solve. That's the second point. If that's the problem, the universal issue of uh, looking down on other people, of thinking ourselves as better, of alienation and hostility uh, horizontally as well as vertically before God, what's God's solution? What's God's solution? Look, we'll look last week, let's look back to verses 1 to 10. In verses 1 to 10, you've got a similar pattern, as I've said, from verses 1 to 3. This is the problem. This is where you were. You were dead. You were in darkness. There was nothing you could do to rescue yourself. And then verse 4, but God, but because of his great love for us, because of God's initiative, because of his action, because of his condescension, everything has changed. There was a problem that only God can solve, and he solved it in Jesus. And our passage is just the same. Paul says and shows God's initiative in a number of different ways. Look at verse 13. He says the alienated people, those who are far away from God because of their sin and rebellion, in Christ have been brought near. Then he says the far-off Gentiles or the near Jews because of their heritage, have through the cross, verse 17 and 18, been brought near. And how has this been made possible? Verse 15, God has acted to solve the problem and bring about peace in place of alienation because of this. Where the law was the problem, where it was used to measure and compare, God in Christ has done away with it. Verse 15, God's abolished in his son Jesus, abolishing in his flesh, the flesh of Jesus, the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of two. This is really rich. Paul is saying in chapter one of the book of Ephesians, it's new life in Christ, by Christ, in him, through him, and only in him. In Christ is life, outside of him is death. The wages of sin is death. In Christ is resurrection and hope and joy. Outside of Christ is longing. That's chapter one. But in chapter two and into chapter three, you get to the heart of the book, which is a new society that Christ makes. New life in Christ, chapter one, a new society in Christ, chapter two and chapter three. And Paul says the purpose of God through Christ is to form a church to win himself, not, not an organization or a, a group of a building used together, not on a bags where it's hard to build upon, not even on a table, but these are living stones. These are people from a diverse background that God has brought together in Christ for his glory. And don't get stuck on verse 15, the gender. One new man does refer to the church under the head who is Christ, that Paul would explain later on. But really, Paul is saying it's, it's, it's the word for humanity. God in Christ, under his loving headship and rule, is bringing a new humanity into being, a new society of love and justice. People that have nothing in common have been brought together in Christ. One of our uh, members is a member of a photography club. 
Uh, others are a member of sporting clubs and have different hobbies. But if you're a member of a club locally, say a tennis club, you go along because you like keeping fit. As you can see from my physique, that may or may not be me. But you go along because you love tennis. You love hanging out with people. You might just be a social club member rather than someone who loves hitting a ball on grass or tarmac or tennis or astroturf, whatever the surface. But you love tennis, and that's with just one or two connections connects you to other people. You have a shared interest that starts and ends when the interaction with the tennis club starts and ends. But here is the Apostle Paul who's explaining a new society where the connections are just, are just myriad. In Christ, you're part of a new family. Your identity is no longer whether you have white skin or black skin or a tanned complexion or not, whether you have a first-class degree or no degree, whether you have a healthy income or you're unemployed or unable to be employed or retired from employment. There are thousands of connections that we feel throughout our culture and throughout our nation, far more than being part of a social club. But Paul says, no longer is your identity the country of your birth even. No longer is your identity the club which you're a part of. Your identity primarily is now because of what Christ has done. You're part of a new family. A new identity is not made by you. It's bestowed. It's given to you. The minute you become a Christian, your primary identity is given to you. You are in Christ it's no longer part of a club where you can start and stop being a member of. It's no longer dependent on the street you were born in or the country of your birth or the taste of music or the enjoyment of food or lack of it that you have. The church is a new humanity in Christ. It's a, it's a new nation under Christ. It's a new people because of Christ. And that means God can finally do something that's never been done before. Because Christ has removed the wall of hostility, that means once and for all, God's people have the potential and the capacity to live at peace, to live at peace with other people. Let me press this a little bit further. The last few years have rightly seen a healthy nationwide, if not a universal, discussion about the place of race and justice. If you've got a white-colored skin with a white heritage, living in a white-majority country, things are far easier for you than if you're someone who has a black heritage, or Western world at least. And rightly, society and government are seeking to go after the minds of young and old alike to say, racism is wrong, there's no place for it in society but I humbly say it will never work because racism is an issue of the heart. The Bible says so. Genesis chapter one, the Bible says that every human being, regardless of the color of their skin, are made in the image of God. They have inherent dignity and worth and value before God. God says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, go into all nations. I'm going to bless every nation of the world. No one is off limits. No one will be denied a opportunity to hear the call of God on their life. Moses, in Numbers chapter 12, who's a Jewish man who's told in Numbers chapter 12 to go and marry a black woman. 
And God not only approves of interracial marriages, but he punishes people who don't like it in Numbers chapter 12 or in Acts chapter 10, moving from Old Testament to New. God says to Peter, God shows no favoritism or no discrimination on the basis of race or class, but accepts from every nation those who fear him and those who do what is right. Society says racism is a terrible thing. The Bible says racism is a terrible thing. But when the secular world goes after the mind that sadly will have such limited success, the Bible always goes for the heart. It's a problem of the heart when we divide, when we are hostile, when we hate other people because of gender or class or skin color. We have to change the heart to restructure the way human beings actually get their identity. Now, how is that possible? When you're a Christian, there are two things. God in Christ gives us a new heart, and with that becomes a new identity. When God gives us a new heart, that means the way we understand ourselves and in comparison to the world gets completely reworked. No longer is it acceptable to compare. It's never acceptable. But no longer can we use our privilege or our status to look down on other people, to alienate ourselves, to, to judge and to divide. Our comparison apparatus is destroyed when we understand the gospel because we're accepted in Christ. We've been rescued by Christ. We're approved of only in Christ. And so when it says, verse 14, the law and its commandments created a wall, a barrier between Jew and Gentile. That's not Paul just using a figure of speech. That was literally true, wasn't it? If you know, in the Old Testament, the Jews had the the rules of literal and ritual purification. They had to clean themselves up physically, prepare themselves spiritually before they came into the presence of a holy and righteous and just God. And Paul is saying, not only is it true in the modern world, it's also true in the ancient world, that there is a, a dividing wall in the temple and in the tabernacle that the Jews could get closer to God. The Gentiles had to stay in the outer court. There's a literal wall of separation but now in Christ, with the promise of the old covenant seen in the new covenant, we receive a new heart. The old dividing wall of separation is removed. Christ is the only way to God through forgiveness and reconciliation. And through him, we receive access to God by one spirit, verse 18. So no longer do you get your identity by comparison, by looking down. The gospel removes pride. And no longer is your identity something you need to create. The gospel says that in Christ, you are new people. So the pecking order is done away with. It's no place. Racism is absolutely abhorrent. Injustice, we want to get engaged in issues of social concern because of the gospel imperative. But then perhaps comes the most shocking verses of all, verse 17. You notice this, it's very subtle. Jesus came... And he preached to you who were far away. He preached peace to you who are far away and peace to you who were near. Reconciling both of you to God through the cross and to one another. So the Gentiles were far away from God. They didn't have the law. They weren't God's chosen people. They didn't have the Bible. They were very immoral. They didn't have the temple. They didn't have the tabernacle and so on. They were far away. The Jews, they were close. They were God's people. They had God's law. 
They had the tabernacle. They had the city of God, Jerusalem. They were the people of God. And yet, verse 17 says, both far away and near, both of them need to hear and receive the gospel. Both of them need to hear the gospel of peace, verse 17. Both of them, Jew and Gentile, far and near, near and far, need to receive the gospel and be reconciled to God. Both of them were estranged from God and need to be brought near and saved by God. See how subtle and yet how radical this is? It doesn't matter if you're respectable and you think you're close to God or you think you're undesirable and you're far away. Both groups of people need to receive Christ and hear the gospel. All of us divide. You walk down Epsom High Street and there are certain people who you think, I wonder if they washed this morning. There are certain people who you think, I don't parent my children like that. And perhaps you just have a mutter to your partner or to your husband. There are certain people that you just think they are very different from me. And we compare and we contrast and we elevate ourselves in our pride. And the gospel comes along and takes our spiritual legs away and says, everyone is equal to Christ. You look and sound respectful. People of different races and cultures and classes and educational backgrounds and postcodes and the way we dress and the way we parent and the way we talk have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There is a problem and there's a solution. We all try to avoid God in a host of different ways. And yet God in Christ has done away with our sin and has made the area around the cross level ground in our respectability and in our unrespectability, in our arrogance and in our humbleness. The gospel gives us a new heart, but it also gives us a new identity that uh, we need to shuffle the pack of our identity that we get from how hard we've worked, the size of our pension pots, um, our educational status and our career, um, the fact if we are able-bodied or, or not, our mental health status, whether it's a struggle, whether it's sound, lots of different ways that we piece ourselves together. And yet Paul says, if you give your life to Christ, if you're accepted in him, then you have a new status. You are far away. You've been brought near. God in Christ has pardoned you. He's accepted you. He delights in you. Your past has been wiped away by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so he not just receives you but he delights in you the righteousness of christ is now yours not just erasing your past but giving you a new status and a new standing before a holy and just god and that affirmation is so powerful it gives you a new identity a new standing that you are standing righteous in christ it's not earned and it can't be lost those who are in christ can never ever be lost is received by God's grace. That's the message of chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 individually, verse 4. But God, it's there in chapter 2, verses 11 to 18, at verse 13. But now in Christ. So if that's the problem, and here's the solution, very quickly as we go to the table of communion. How did God bring that about? What's the method? Problem, solution, and method. It says twice. How does God bring warring people together? It's not about solely the mind. If it's predominantly about the heart that then transformed the mind and the affections and the actions, 
How does God do that? It's through the cross. Verse 13. Jew and Gentile. Comprehensive understanding of the world. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 16. He, God, reconciles both of them. Excuse me, Jesus. Verse 16. Reconciles both of them to God through the cross. I'm going to use some spatial language, not just far and near, but horizontal and vertical. Forgive me. Our alienation before God vertically always affects our alienation and our attitude horizontally towards our fellow men and women. Because of our alienation with God that began in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, God's good world was destroyed by our disobedience and turning our back on him and stamping on his rules and thinking we knew better than him. God deserves to be hostile towards us for our hostility towards him in terms of justice, but also our hostility horizontally towards other people. And yet on the cross, Jesus takes and is made our hostility. He literally was made sin for us, taking our liability and our blame and our responsibility for the actions that we willfully and deliberately took. And because of his death, he is made possible, removing the written code. By his blood, new life is possible. A new hope is possible. A new society has been made real. A new joy can be understood and experienced. And verse 18, if that's not enough, you have access to God through his son, Jesus, by one spirit. It's not just closeness of far and near, it's access, which means relationship and intimacy and joy. Where did Brant Jean get the power to forgive? Where did he get the desire to want to cross the courtroom and embrace someone who took his brother's life? Brandt was a Christian, and he had received Christ into his own life. He had known something of the forgiveness of God in his own spirit. And when God's grace and reconciliation comes into your own heart, right into the very middle of your internal workings in your spirit, it doesn't matter how people smell. It doesn't matter about the color of their skin. It doesn't matter about how much money they've got in the bank. It doesn't matter if they look respectable or not. There is a message of reconciliation to be proclaimed through the church. And it's our privilege to model it, to live it, and to do it. There's a quote from a pastor called Alistair Begg. He says this, the cross is where reconciliation is provided. And the church is where reconciliation is to be proclaimed. Do we have a heart to do that, friends? Is our door as COVID secure as it can be, but are we welcoming whether it's coming to church in person or in Zoom or whether we rub shoulders with our non-Christian friends in the week. Hostile enemies in Christ have now become a loving family because the power of the gospel to change absolutely everything. Those who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's the problem, there's a solution, and the cross is the method.